happy new year i think this is actually the official first public node podcast of 2021 and uh if you're anything like me i'm pretty sure that you are so glad to see that year be gone and uh man i got a really 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 good one to start this year off with i'm super excited we're going to be chatting with amit sharma with Finclusive. And uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground here. But before we get started, let's go ahead and give a public shout out to the sponsor of this podcast, which is Public Node. And for those of you that are living under a rock and do not know, Public Node is a nonprofit organization led by stellar community members working together to support the open and inclusive stellar network and how fitting we're talking about inclusiveness because we're going to talk about finclusive whose mission here is to bring secure compliance censored banking to the 2.5 to 3.5 billion that's with a b billion people and businesses worldwide who are financially excluded or under deserved round of applause amit sharma how you doing welcome to uh public node how you doing today i'm doing great that's a heck of an intro thank you sam for having me and happy new year to you sir yeah happy new year to you and um you know i'm i'm really excited about this conversation you know there is and we've, we've chatted about this briefly before there are a, a, a lot of talk of, of blockchains and and what this evolution in technology what opportunities is going to provide but, you know, for, for myself and for a lot of the folks that follow me, it, it really comes down to one thing, and that's financial inclusion. A lot of us that have gravitated to uh, the blockchain and, and crypto sphere, we share that in common. We've been, you know, in many ways felt as if we've been locked out of the system. And this is an opportunity to rewrite some laws, some, some rules and some uh, open up some doors that were closed on us in the past and have some inclusion. So, I wanted to first start off with introducing you to the audience members, so that way they get an understanding of exactly your background, because it's pretty impressive, and and I want to make sure that um, they they have an understanding of that. So uh, I'm I'm going to go ahead and give the mic to you, and, and if you can just introduce yourself a little bit and 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 provide some background. No worries, thanks uh, very much. I mean, I think the best way to start is at its heart. Uh, you know, I was a Peace Corps volunteer and really everything starts from there, you know, just grassroots wow. development. And right after college, I went to the University of Virginia. I joined the Peace Corps. I was in Mongolia and I really loved the work of grassroots development. I was in rural education reform and microenterprise development and small business development, all these things when, you know, I was super young and I got a wow. real understanding at that time. And, you know, coupled with the fact that, you know, I'm, you know, my parents are immigrants into the U.S., so I spend a third of my life life going to and from India four to four plus months every year I was in India and I did my schooling in the States. So I grew up with that background and I really had a, an affinity and a, and a desire to work in the emerging markets. So Peace Corps was 
was really a, a boon for me. And then I went on to do other development work in India and South Asia, some in South America. And then, you know, in graduate school, I was getting my business degree and uh, international economics degree. And 9-11, the, the horrible, tragic events of, of September 2001 happened. And I was recruited at that time to go to the U.S. Treasury Department. Wait, wait. So that was a very pivotal moment in history. I still remember the day yep. when the planes went into the tower. And so during this time, you were actually tasked with a very peculiar scenario here with AML. So yeah, please continue on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it, this is the kind of inception of Finclusive, quite frankly, is, you know, is that experience. Wow. You know, at the U.S. Treasury Department, post-September 2001, you know, obviously there was the diplomatic response headed by the White House, National Security Council, the State Department. There's the military response, of course. But there's this massive middle, right? You know, outside of, on the one hand, diplomatic response and the military response, how do we actually look at what facilitates terrorism or bad guys in general? And what we realized was the financial services system is a huge conduit, right? The financial and commercial systems that with which you and I, you know, leverage every single day to send money to, to, to family, to pay our expenses, to earn our income and deposit in banks, all of those plain vanilla activities. Guess what? Terrorist groups, you know, illicit actors of all types have to exploit that system to recruit, carry out a terrorist mission, launder funds that have been derived from illicit activities. All of those go through and wash through the financial system. So we were tasked mm. at that time, and, and I had a great opportunity on the ground floor of this new office within the US, U.S. Treasury Department to look at how we can bring to bear a very robust and comprehensive counter-terrorist financing strategy. And really, it was there was a proactive, punitive approach and a defensive approach. The proactive approach was Let's identify those nodes that those networks that facilitate terrorist organizations, you know, the buyers and sellers, the brokers, the recruiters, all those guys interse intersect the, the financial system. And then there's the defensive mm -hmm. strategy, which is how do we put in controls at the sharp end of the spear, basically banks and non-bank financial institutions that are leveraged for all of that plain vanilla finance that we we're just talking about? How do we put in those controls and requirements so they can proactively identify and ensure that the financial system is not exploited by bad actors. All of those activities were, are noteworthy and right and just when you're trying to ensure that consumers are protected in the financial system, that you and I are not exploited, that the financial system is not mm -hmm. in place for bad guys. And, and so that those two strategies, the proactive, punitive, and, and the defensive. Well, first of all, let me also say right here is that uh, basically salute to you for, for helping out because that was a very critical time and I think anyone listening to this podcast wouldn't argue that, yes, we need measures in place to stop the bad guys. What could possibly go wrong with that? You know, I mean, who wouldn't want that? Bad guys are out there. Let's put these rules in place to shut them out, shut down those nodes, as you mentioned, destroy terrorism as we know it. Nothing could go wrong, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, <laughs> bright eyed and bushy tailed we were right. We because we, we just took a very law enforcement centric uh, approach to that. Right. It was about catching bad guys. And again, you're right. No one can argue with that intent. The challenge is that when faced with those controls and as banks said, OK, I have to do more. Know your customer more anti-money laundering uh, requirements in my institution, more risk management, more governance, more monitoring, more analytics, right? What happens? Your costs go up. 
And over time, banks, as commercial entities, they start saying, hold on a minute, if it's going to cost me X to facilitate certain types of transactions or certain activities into and out of certain markets, and if it's going to benefit me less than that cost, I've got a commercial decision to make. And the truth of the matter is compliance is expensive. And we've only, from a regulatory perspective, added and increased those obligations across the board to financial institutions. So understandably, financial institutions start saying, okay, if it's going to cost more than the benefit of engagement with certain segments of the economy, I'm just going to de-risk. And that's a term of art that's been you know, floating around for the last mm. 10 years. I'm going to de-risk, which is a bit of a, you know, uh, a mislabel. It's really de-bank. It's basically jettisoning, mm. pushing out certain segments of the economy because they are considered higher compliance risk. If I have to monitor more of Sam's activities, if I have to do more due diligence about his background, if I have to do all of these things, it's just my cost basis goes up. And risk and compliance departments at most major institutions are back office growing fixed cost cost centers at institutions. They're not profit centers. And they're in the business of no. Good point. And so they are looked at as that sort of end-all, be-all decision maker. And, and banks then say, okay, you know what? I'm going to get out of certain areas. Now, the, the challenge that we found 10 years later where we did a big study. So I went from the Treasury Department, I had the good fortune of, of working five plus years at Treasury, helping to stand up what became the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. I had the very good fortune of working very closely with, with Hank Paulson when he came in as, as Secretary of the Treasury. And, and I was the Chief of Staff to uh, Bob Kim at the Deputy Secretary uh, in my waning years there. And you know, all around national security issues and then right into the financial crisis. And during those months, of a harrowing time where all of a sudden the risk inherent inside the financial services industry was now a global concern. And so banks rightly are saying, okay, as these obligations continue to be foisted on me, I'm going to get out of certain businesses or just avoid them because I've got a reputation to uphold and I've got a cost basis to make sure I manage. Unfortunately, that has fallen disproportionately on certain types of people and, and constituents, low moderate income, the global poor, frontier and emerging markets, mm. certain types of organizations, money services businesses, increasingly so fintech companies and other non-bank entities like crypto and virtual asset service providers considered higher compliance risk because we just know mm. less about them. And as banks start looking right. at all these new innovations in technology and new financial services and payment mechanisms, and they start saying, wait a second, if I have that much more scrutiny coming from regulators and I've got a reputation to uphold and a cost basis to control, you know what? I'm just not going to do business with them. Net result, two and a half to three and a half billion people remain unbanked or underbanked in the world. That is a quarter of the United States, hundreds of millions of organizations that cannot access basic financial services. I'm talking crypto companies cannot make payroll wow. because banks say, sorry. Too higher risk. When we talk about three and a half billion people are unbanked and underbanked, I think a lot of people listening to this, you know, they think of, oh, this is happening somewhere else. But you just said a quarter of that is, is in the United States. That's correct. That's correct. The plight of the unbanked and underbanked is not just a global poor country phenomenon. It is also right here mm. in the United States. And roughly the richest country in the world. Richest country in the world <laughs> where it is still challenging for many to access 
basic financial services to simply get an account at a bank, you know, and so you have almost a quarter of the of the US either unbanked or underbanked. Now, some of that has upticked in the last couple of years, there are more adults today than say five years ago that have access to an account. But you know, financial inclusion mm-hmm. is not the end all be all. And we're really talking about financial resilience, economic resilience, financial health, right? And so while we may get right. more folks into the financial system, it's really about how do we increase the financial health of our constituents? How do we ensure that folks can withstand shocks? I mean, greater than half of Americans, greater than 50% of Americans cannot deal with an un- unintended expense of $400 or more. That's incredible. That's yeah. Now think about the it's, pandemic. That, that is, it's, it's sad. It's sad. It's sad. Think yeah. about the number of small businesses and entrepreneurs and uh, households that simply because of the lack of uh, of an account registered with the, with the U.S. government had to get their stimulus check in a prepaid card or a hard check. And, and then having to go to a check casher and pay upwards of 30% just to simply cash their own check. Oh, my gosh. These conditions are not just the phenomenon of the global poor. Now, but one has to be also very honest as to what are the reasons for the unbanked. And that's that's a reckoning that fintech in particular has to come to bear, right? Uh, because fintech you know, has a lot of promise, but have financial technologies in their commitment to serving the underserved. Have they really solved the process of, of the unbanked? Because like I said, just getting folks into services is not enough. It's really getting them up the ladder and increasing financial health, being able to withstand those economic shocks and being able to actually create wealth, create assets and, and build a sustainable financial future. And that's what we're talking about here. So this is a global phenomenon. And the, and the final point I'll just make is too often we talk about this in the context of households and individuals, but small and medium mm-hmm. enterprises, they constitute 80 plus percent of global jobs growth. So it, this is a job accretive issue, wow. right? In the United States, 99% of all registered businesses are small businesses. 99%. The engine of the United States economy isn't Walmart, JP Morgan, Target, Google. It's the small medium enterprises, the mom and pop shops, those folks, the mm-hmm. entrepreneurs that need access to a small business loan, that need to get a little credit so that they can advance and, and put products in the market. This is what financial inclusion truly is about. It's empowerment. Man, you're absolutely right. Gosh, you, if you guys are listening, I mean, I, I hope you guys are, are bringing all this into into your brain here and let, let them just sit here because I think for the first time, you know, we're starting to put some feel, some human beings behind these numbers. And when we talk about financial inclusion, when we talk about banking the unbanked. These are people that live in your city, live in your town. And, and you know, what you just ended off with talking about SMEs, when we talk about not having proper access to banks and, you know, you could have a great idea, great person, but guess what? If you don't have established credit, guess what? No loan. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, no loan, no help. It, it really is heartbreaking. So in kind of talking about this, what role is Finclusive playing? Let, let's let's kind of dive into Finclusive as, as a corporation. How are you guys addressing this issue? Right. No. And so Finclusive, as you rightly point out, our true north is financial inclusion. It's right there in the name. And we take a bit of a unique approach, right? We, given our backgrounds, the company is founded by you know, ex-regulators and policymakers from the U.S. Treasury Department and FinCEN and and the Federal Reserve Bank, um, et cetera, folks that that have been in technology and in banking, international banking in particular. Um, so understand the, the the financial markets, understand payments and cross-border payments in particular, understand banking, and understand regulatory oversight. 
And given the background I just described to you on the compliance side, why is that relevant? We take a unique approach because very often, many of the issues plaguing the underserved or the financially excluded roll up to some kind of regulatory compliance concern. An individual may mm-hmm. lack a discernible, identifiable identification, right? Verifiable identification. Right. That prevents you when a bank needs to do their know your customer, how do they verify and validate you? There are a little over a billion people on the planet that are born without a verifiable identification. How do they access services mm. when highly regulated industries like banking must make sure that they verify and validate you, right? Now, that's less of an right. issue, say, in the United States, but you pointed out another issue. If you lack a credit history or financial history, if you uh, were in a bank before, but you overdrafted too often and you were now on the CheckX system or one of these um, systems that notify you as a quote-unquote bad individual to bank, banks look at that. And who does that disproportionately fall under? It falls on the low and moderate income pr- predominantly immigrants, poor people. You're right. You're right. I mean, I'll, I'll share, like I'll share a story. I, I remember I'm a, a child of, of an immigrant as well here to the States. And I remember starting off as an entrepreneur, I was still in college and me and my roommate, you know, we, I, I was sharing with him that, Hey, look, I, I think I want to start, you know, start my own business. I don't have any money. He said, well, dude, just go get some, you know, get a, get some credit and leverage it. So I said, all right, you want to come down with me? You know, have all the little boots. I remember going down there and mind you, my, my father has a, you know, he's always had impeccable credit, like 800 credit score. My mother has always had credit. I mean, very, very responsible. You know, we didn't, you know, don't ask my dad to invest, but, you know, he, he definitely knew how to how to pay his bills. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and I remember going down to get a credit card and my credit card limit that I got was $500. My roommate's credit card that he got was $10,000. <laughs> yeah. That was like my first like okay, what criteria are they looking at? We're both the same age, you know, hey, okay, well maybe they look at my parents maybe and you know, they have great credit scores. What criteria makes it so that I'm considered a higher risk? Give okay, go ahead and give give them a smaller amount. Oh, this person is is okay, give them a much higher amount. That was my first introduction to the behind the scenes, as as they like to call it, de-risking that is going on in the financial world. Yeah, that's right. It's a great example. And I think it's the it's an example that unfortunately is not unique, right? And there's so many people that that deal with those same, sadly. same issues, sadly, right? And and so there's those are the challenges. So there's there's two or three trends that that are worth quickly pointing out that sort of justify or or sort of our motivations at Finclusive. One we touched on earlier is that every financial intermediary has to undertake a number of regulatory compliance requirements, knowing your customer, background due diligence, making sure that that the individuals and, and organizations that they bank they have a full understanding of their background. And when those backgrounds are hard to discern, when there's lack of history, when there's lack of identification to verify and validate, it makes it a lot harder and you get boxed in a very small box. So inclusion and compliance has traditionally been a very exclusionary 
endeavor, I should say. Compliance has been an exclusionary endeavor. It's how do I look at your risk and box it and limit your activity, which is a bit of the experience that you faced. And as regulatory compliance requirements have grown, those costs have only exacerbated. And so the average institution has to go to multiple different solutions providers to do know your customer or know your business and sanction screening and criminal background checks. And, and if you need to do enhanced due diligence, then you social and adverse media screening and transaction monitoring. All of these things cost money. So compliance is, has been mm-hmm. an inefficient endeavor. It's been a very piecemeal endeavor and it's been a growing cost endeavor. So that's number one. And so half of our business, the foundation of our business is compliance as a service, bringing a regulatory technology platform to bear and say, wait a second, if so many institutions have to go to all these different providers, why don't we bring it into one single stack, single workflow, single plugin, all API enabled, and and there's a a web-based user interface, but basically you can get a number of services in one go, one contract, one integration. And now by bringing those services together and and Finclusive believes in this ecosystem approach, CAS or compliance as a service is an amalgam of some proprietary built capabilities and integrated third-party capabilities so that institutions as as large as as a big bank or as small as a credit union or as global as a fintech company or, or a crypto exchange, whatever type of financial service organization you might be, you have these obligations and you can plug in and do your know your customer, do your enhanced due diligence, do your transaction monitoring and, and analytics and tracking all in one go. So that's one, bringing that barrier down and making it much more seamless and cost effective. But we couldn't stop there, right? So the other two trends are worth noting. One trend is that, and, and uh, Brian Brooks, the acting uh, OCC head right now, has, has remarked on these, these couple pieces too. There's an unbundling of finance that's happening right now. And this is where the fintech revolution is, is really showing some promise, right? The universal banking model of the 80s, 90s, right, where you know, Citibank was going to give you every service under the sun, that's fragmenting now. If you want a student loan, you can get it outside of a bank. If you want to buy a car, you can do so outside of a bank. If you want if you want to send money overseas, you can do it outside of a bank. So you can do so many things now and never set foot in a bank or engage a bank. So financial services are being provided at an exponential scale outside of traditional banking. However, the same rules apply, right? Consumer protection, risk and compliance applies. So all of these organizations engaging in these more piecemeal solutions, really disrupting the larger players and providing really good value-added services, they all still need to have regulatory compliance. They still need to do know your customer, still need to make sure they have anti-fraud controls and the like. And then the final trend is that finance is no longer a jurisdiction-based endeavor. It's cross-border. It's global. But regulatory compliance is jurisdictionally bound, right? So if I'm a bank in the United States and I don't adhere to a particular law, the U.S. regulators come after me. And if I'm a foreign bank operating in the U.S., I know where my jurisdiction lies. But today, there are peer-to-peer value transfer companies and blockchain-enabled networks that are global. You don't know who your intermediary is. Half the time, there is no intermediary. So you are transacting directly peer-to-peer. So you have an increased peer-to-peer engagement, non-intermediary-based finance today. You have a cross-border reality of finance today. So we need a much more modernized, incentivized self-governance stack for compliance. And it has to be global. And that's the other half of the business, right? So we've got compliance as a service, but we always saw that 
as a gateway product. We could have stopped there and been just a regulatory technology company and created the most robust compliance engine on the planet. But if no one can access banking services, we were not accomplishing our goals, <laughs> right? So the whole idea was then use that as a gateway and then partner with banks here in the US so that any institution right. or any individual coming through that compliance gateway can get an insured account here in the US. And thirdly, being able to send value. And because there are these alternative rails exponentially growing that are outside of traditional bank rails of ACH and, and wires, et cetera, now we have to connect the two. And that's where inclusion is very powerful because if we can be mm -hmm. the bridge between crypto or token-based transfers and fiat being the on and off ramp between crypto and fiat, that's important, especially when crypto is not yet a ubiquitous. I still can't get a student loan in crypto. I still can't go buy that car right, <laughs> in crypto. I need right. to be able to interact with the fiat system. And that's the other half of inclusive, right? So it's the compliance as a service stack and then what we call as accounts and payments where we partner with banks so that we can engage and facilitate the creation of accounts for individuals and entities wherever located in a U.S. institution so you can now hold that value. So at the end of the day, in summary, there's three things in core banking, really. If you just came down to the very, very core things that one needs in financial services, can I hold value securely? So often in some countries, it's a theft issue, a security issue. It may be an inflation issue of hundreds or thousand percent inflation. You need to hold that value securely. Secondly, you need to be able to access that value. That's where mobile banking and that's where technology kicks in. And secondly, I need to be able to transfer that value. I need to be able to transfer it in multiple ways and to multiple um, individuals and entities globally. So if I can store value, transfer value, and access that value, that is effectively the core of financial services. And so that's what we try to do is we provide a compliance layer that any organization can plug in to achieve their financial regulatory compliance, anti-money laundering, know your customer obligations. And we partner with both traditional institutions like banks so that those individuals and entities can then hold that value securely in an insured account and then be able to transact that value via the bank's rails and the crypto rails. And that's what Conclusive is in a nutshell. I think that was a, a great, great summary. And I wrote that down, store, access, and transfer. And actually connects to, you know, my next question is the first time I, I had a chance to, to hear you speak was 2019 in Mexico City. Stellar had its first annual conference called Meridian. And it, it was interesting. I, I was scheduled to do something during the time that you were speaking. And I apologize for that group. Um, we're still friends, so I know you forgive me. Um, but I completely postponed and rescheduled it because I was really drawn to what you were saying. And I actually you probably remember I actually came up to you afterwards and, and had some follow-up questions because I just, you know, strongly believed I said, okay, here's somebody that understands the entire picture. He's not, he's not a, an insider. He's an outsider, just like myself, who has access to the inside, understands it, understands the people, understands how you know what what the, what the government needs so we definitely want to work within those those barriers but we need somebody that can speak on our behalf and so i really saw that in you and so just kind of tying into what you said and where we first met i look at the finclusive website and i see what you guys are doing i noticed that you guys are working with uh stellar and the stellar development foundation if you don't mind spending some time you know 
especially with your background and regulatory background, what attracted you to Stellar? Did you consider other protocols and blockchains? And just maybe even speak a little bit on some of the ways that Finclusive is interacting directly with the Stellar network. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and we've been attracted to and, and are forming a very you know strong and, and growing partnership with Stellar. The foundation of that is really rooted in the ethos and mission of inclusion. They really believe that uh, as we do, that that financial inclusion is hugely important globally. And the toolkits, the protocols, and the platform that they've created and are working to grow is, in essence, allowing for organizations of all types to build anchors in their network to be able to do exactly what I just said, issue value, store value, and transfer value. Now, when you do so in a token-based or crypto-based network, one still needs those on-off ramps. And that's one of the functions that we serve within the context of Stellar, is as a US-based on-off ramp with our bank of record partners, we can transact with an Africa-based fintech, as we are doing now, that's on the Stellar network. And they are engaged in transactions with both individuals and entities that need to transact with individuals and entities in the US. So they can, we can transact over the Stellar network, and we can exchange tokens that are transferred on the Stellar network into US dollar fiat and be that off-ramp. And we can be the on-ramp as well, where organizations need to send value through that network and, and we can have the, the bank conduit to hold value in an insured deposit, transfer that value into a token that can be transferred on, on the Stellar network, and still have access to the biggest payments networks on the planet like SWIFT and ACH, right? And so that that mm. part is important. The additional piece with Stellar is that Stellar uh, as a network brings a lot of tools to bear for organizations to create those anchors. And every one of those anchors, therefore, is doing financial services activity that therefore obligates or covers them from a financial regulatory compliance perspective. But Stellar doesn't have an enforcement mechanism or a compliance mechanism to be shared and adopted by everyone. And that's the second space we come in, is we bring compliance tools to that network and we try to multilateralize them. What we're excited about is we've we've engaged several anchors on the, the Stellar network and a number of those that are working to build anchors on the Stellar network, all of whom need to conduct regulatory compliance. They all need to do know your customer, anti-money laundering, anti-fraud, transaction tracking and the like. And we can bring those tools to bear. And in the in the last quarter of, of last year, we, we initiated with uh, several other anchors, Africa-based, LATAM-based, Europe-based for cross border flows where we are a centralized compliance provider. And by doing so, we bring a strong baseline foundation of compliance services to those anchors. And by doing that, we can therefore multilateralize our services and bring greater efficiencies. So not every single anchor is having to do these redundant activities. So I'll give you a quick example. If that Africa-based fintech is uh, doing cross-border flows with LATAM-based counterparts and they originate certain clients and the LATAM-based counterparts have to do that know-your-customer verification, the traditional model would be they have to capture all those personal identifying documents, do all of the KYC, know your customer, or all of the KYB, know your business, and all the background checking and whatnot. But if Inclusive has done that for Anchor A in country A, now Anchor B and country B can leverage all of that work and do verification and validation of 
KYC information, KYB information of those clients and counterparties near real time without providing and giving up the personal identifying information of those individuals or the personal entity information of those organizations, thereby also protecting privacy in tandem. And so you bring a tremendous efficiency across the platform in providing these services in a multilateral framework. And now everyone is being provided that is um, building those anchors, their financial services companies and their home regulators want to make sure that they have compliance in, in place. And th those are the toolkits that we bring to bear. So we're the US based on and off ramp with our bank relationships and we're a compliance provider for an increasing number of institutions that are building within Stellar. Hearing you say it sounds a lot more exciting than in my head. Stellar is really, really creating that bridge. In crypto, it's kind of like everybody wants to go digital, but we're not going to just cut off the, uh, I guess, the legacy system and just jump straight digital. And, and it seems from what you're describing here is that Stellar creates a regulatory, well, with Inclusive is creating a regulatory framework where we um, I guess get a bridge into the digital world. Is is am I thinking of this correctly? You're thinking about it spot on. I mean, too often we let technology lead us down the path instead of standing up and saying, "Wait a second, what is that technology really there to solve?" So we over technologize a lot of problems. Right, <laughs> the blockchain and distributed ledger technology is very exciting, but it's not a panacea. Right, it's got a couple use cases that have been proven out. But there are a lot of folks in the crypto world that say, just throw it on a blockchain, all your problems are solved. It doesn't work <laughs> that way, right? So right. we need to be that bridge. And like I said, if you want to you know, get a student loan and you are in Botswana, how are you going to do it in crypto? If you want to send right. you know, monies to and from individuals, you know, even in the US, families sending money between here and the emerging markets, how are you going to do it exclusively in crypto, right? Because at the end of the day, you still need... There are dependencies to get into and out of fiat. So the on-off ramps are critical in this juncture. And secondly, we have to be that bridge. When we get to a point where crypto or virtual assets are ubiquitous, just like US dollar cash, then we can be in that place where we can say, okay, we can actually transact, hold value in crypto and do everything within the context of a particular blockchain or peer-to-peer -peer or within a token-based economy. But we're not there yet. So we have to be right. that bridge. And today, the vast majority still conduct those transactions over the bank's rails. So we have to be that bridge in that way. The final reason we need to be that bridge, and this is hugely important, is that regulators are watching. The financial <laughs> services industry is a highly regulated industry, and it must be so. Think about it. Your personal information is caught up in it. Your personal transaction and economic information is caught up in it. Very sensitive. Consumer protection rules are important. Know your customer rules are important. Transaction monitoring rules are important. Safety and soundness in the system and financial services is hugely important. But that final trend I had mentioned earlier that's hugely exciting from an inclusion perspective is equally daunting from a financial crimes and risk management perspective. Today, organizations of all types, nonprofits, retail companies, social media companies, recognize they have this amazingly large footprint. Oh boy, with a few off-the-shelf software packages, they can become a financial services entity. Well, now you have entrants in the financial services space that were never conceived of originally as banks, now undertaking banking activity. Google, Facebook, Apple, Walmart, all of these organizations are either already or trying to be financial services companies. 
but they're not banks. They're not right. like regulated banks, but they're acting like it. So one has to ask that question. Do we still have the same consumer protection, know your customer, monitoring, financial system integrity rules applied to them? Not yet. And we need to bring that kind of governance structure to that space. And we can with modernized compliance tools like we're talking about here that are equally applicable to non-bank financial intermediaries as well as bank financial intermediaries. And if we do that lockstep with regulators in mind, regulators can be broad across the board, which is why I'm a big champion of a lot of what Brian Brooks has tried to do, is tried to really just say, let's create enabling environments to, to engage these technologies, A, because this is a fait accompli. We are already there. Cross-border finance is there and financial technologies will continue to grow. So if we realize those two realities of moving to a more decentralized world, a more peer-to-peer -peer world, a world where we no longer need these intermediaries for Amit to send Sam $5. Amit can now send Sam $5 directly. I don't need an intermediary to do it. Now the question right. is, am I defrauding Sam? Right. Right. Those are the controls that we need to just ensure that are in place. You de Wait, you, are you defrauding me? <laughs> no, not with intent. You got nervous there. <laughs> right. Let me go. Let me, let me go spend that five dollars you sent. Spend it now. Okay. <laughs> right. So that's all we're talking about. We're just saying let's bring a modernized, more disciplined application of financial system controls into the space, and and that's what we're trying to do with this concept of a global best practices rule book, and 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 we have a global consortia that we're leading. Uh, with a number of very noteworthy companies globally to say, look, if you're issuing value, storing value, or or transferring value, you're obligated. Here's what those obligations look like. Here's how to do them. Well, look, I, I think that's great. Representative Maxine Waters, you know I'm a big fan. I know uh, you guys are listening out there. Come talk to Finclusive. He'll give you some good background and, and show you how we can make this merger of digital uh, work and, and serve. I, I know you got a lot of Latinx constituents in your district. Folks that are sending uh, money over to uh, Africa. I know that. So uh, you make sure you come and holler at Inclusive. Really appreciate all the works. So anyway, that was, my, that was my shout out to Representative Maxine Waters, in case you didn't catch that one. But uh, before we wrap up here, let's end it talking about some use cases. You know, we kind of talked about an intro, what our problems were, how Inclusive is uh, working hard to create solutions and very much so way on that path of creating solutions for these issues that we have. So let's put into action three or four short use case examples you can share with the audience. Uh, absolutely. And Sam, you're right to sort of point out to the to the policymakers and the regulators. And 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 you're absolutely right. Like there, there's a way to do this. I think they're all asking the right questions about saying, absolutely, you know, hold on a second. Are we are we enabling environments that are just going to perpetuate bad things, illicit finance and exploitation? Correct. Those are the right questions to ask. My only request from those same folks that, you know, that we work with too, you know, House Financial Services, Senate Banking, the regulators and, and others and internationally is to also not jump to the automatic two conclusions. One, that some of these technologies are inherently bad. Not all crypto related transfers are illicit. It's unfortunate that, you know, some of the uh, enforcement actions over the course of the last number of years have highlighted 
illicit activity within the crypto domain. But quite frankly, the most laundered instrument on the planet is US dollar cash, and we're not going to get rid of US dollar cash. So we should not look at crypto and virtual assets inherently as automatically high risk. They perform a wonderfully robust utility function. And, and we can look at these technologies. And the second piece of that is some of this technology actually builds in inherent auditability tools, inherent tracking tools, the blockchain, it's the immutability of the ledger, the encrypted and distributed nature of it, bring incredible to, uh, uh, security features alongside that that are hugely beneficial to law enforcement and, and the like. And, and so as we think about this, we just have to look at it in, in both those lenses. So use cases, let's talk about some use cases. Yeah. So within Stellar, I gave a little bit of a hint of, of what we're trying to do there. Cross-border payments, both for businesses and for individuals uh, with other anchors and in a multilateral frame where, where they, they uh, leverage Finclusive as the compliance provider and now we can automate and make much more efficient know your customer verification across those different anchors. That's one use case. Another use case I'm super excited about is uh, US-based credit unions. Credit unions operate on a more cooperative model, a co-op model, right? And so I could be right. you know, a member of a credit union uh, out in California, but wonderful if, if I could walk in you know, during my vacation in Miami into a local credit union and be able to access funds. So what we are doing is working with the consortia that's putting together a, a, a mechanism where we can apply our Finclusive ID, which is given to everyone that comes mm. to our Know Your Customer platform, a Fink ID. We apply that to them, and basically, in their wallet, they can walk into any credit union that's participating and say, here you go. I'm KYC verified. Yeah, no, that's a big deal. I've, I've experienced that. Plus one on the uh, on that one, please make sure that happens. I'm, I'm, <laughs> what I'm else particularly you got? excited about that about that endeavor. And, and if we and, and one of the reasons I'm hugely excited about it is that credit unions are inherently community based, right? They serve they are. The community. They, they are. They know their customers. A lot of state workers, yep. um, your police force, you know, your your nurses, exactly. you know, are, are all at these credit unions. That's that's where my mother and father banked. Uh, and so I, I enjoyed it and I loved our credit union, you know, where I grew up. And as soon as I moved, even though it was the same exact state, exactly. <laughs> it was so, you know, I, it, it wasn't a smooth transition. So, uh, yeah, so I'm really excited about about that, about that one as yeah, well. So imagine if you could have kind of universal member portability and doing it securely. Right. right. That would be right. exciting. And and we should. We should be making financial services as ubiquitous as, as that. Another use case, which I'm hugely excited about, uh, a crowdfunding platform. There was a mm. Muslim affiliated crowdfunding platform. You know, they uh, provide organizations raising funds for all sorts of different activities from scholarships for underprivileged youth to refugee assistance uh, for Syrian refugees crossing into the Turkish border, right? Hugely important endeavors. Now, scholarship assistance, raising money for scholarships for underprivileged youth in inner city LA, lower risk. Raising money for <laughs> refugee assistance cross-border from Syria into Turkey, much higher risk. And these folks were doing such good work, but a lot of payment facilitators and banks just wouldn't bank them because they had a number of strikes against them. A, they were a nonprofit, yeah. already considered higher risk. The US government labeled it as such a number of years ago. Secondly, they're Muslim mm. affiliated. I'm sorry, but there's inherent bias there. And a lot of organizations just said, you know what, there's a higher risk there. And then they're doing activities like I just described, helping raise money for campaigns that are doing unbelievably legitimate humanitarian work. 
but oh my gosh, too high risk. Those payment facilitators, banks just didn't want to be, you know, affiliated with something that could go south quickly. So what we did with them was we got them into our compliance as a service stack. And because of the global nature of our mm. due diligence, we can do the on the ground diligence of the agents that are delivering that aid in Turkey. And they have a full kind of soup to nuts due diligence platform with our compliance as a service. And secondly, now we can get them into our bank of record partners. And now tens of millions of dollars can be raised and moved to places that really wow. need to go through this compliance stack by engaging them into banking. And just in the last year, they've done 100, 150 million in, in support for these services. It's massive. So we're excited about these are the kinds of wow. use cases that get turned wow. on when we stop looking at the world in, in this false binary choice of either I can do inclusion or I can have a safe and secure financial system. We think that is a load of bunk. That is a false binary choice. You actually have greater systemic transparency and greater security when you bring more into the system, when you can see and, and engage more individuals, households, entities, organizations in the financial services space. And by doing that, you create economic resilience in ways that lead directly to our national security. And so we had it backwards in a post 9-11 world, totally backwards, right? We looked at mm -hmm. the, the sharp end of the spear and said, let's proactively go after bad guys. And anyone facilitating them, knowingly or unknowingly, we're going to slap a massive fine on them. The net result was we threw the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of very legitimate organizations and individuals, households, people, constituents, types of businesses got thrown out of the banking system and labeled as high risk. Net result, systemic risk is high. Economic resilience is low. Let's flip the model. Compliance can be an inclusionary endeavor. It can be a cost-efficient endeavor. And when you do it with that orientation in mind, we bring more folks in the system and we can enable them to send value, store value, create wealth, and generate ways to eliminate financial or, or deal with, with financial shocks such that we don't have to deal you know, with these, these massive spending plans from the government every five to 10 years because all of a sudden a big segment of our economy is, is at a loss. We can now build in those, those structures. Man, I tell you what, I would give you a standing ovation, but the clapping would probably just irritate the ears of the listeners right now. You could just drop the mic, walk off the stage and go in your car because that just summarized, summarized it perfectly. I have nothing more to say, nothing to add, but just to say that keep doing your thing, keep advocating, keep connecting because especially that story you talked about with the crowdfunding, about 30 ideas, you know, ran through my head. And quite honestly, I hope that crowdfunding idea in particular, that that inspires somebody, that, just one person that's listening to contact for inclusive and realize that, you know what, you're finally creating a solution because I've been trying to do X in, you know, this particular country. I was trying to help. I was trying to do something. And I, I just had doors closed in my face. It's going to change lives. And this is what I'm here for. And I just want to thank you again for taking this time with us today to, to really share this story because I know how busy you are. Folks, this guy works hard. He works, works really hard. You can see it in the team that surrounded him. While you're relaxing over the holidays, they're working because this is a passion project. And once again, Amit, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I look forward to hopefully doing more of these with you guys in the future. 
as things continue to build. Uh, can, can you promise me that? We'll connect uh, later on? 100% and really appreciate the the good notes and, and the support. We're just getting started, right? It takes an ecosystem yeah. to really do this at scale and do it in a way that really addresses some of these systemic challenges. I am blessed to be uh, surrounded by a fantastic team and, and uh, of folks that are just much smarter than I to help execute on this strategy. But it takes a, it's going to take a lot more than us. So if my, my last bits are, if you care about these issues, if you care about inclusion, if you like technology, if you're a geek about compliance, uh, call us. <laughs> if you care about this global framework that we continue to drive on, on incentivized self-governance for cross-border finance, come join us. If you want to help solve some of the inclusion challenges in, in, on a systemic way, or you're passionate about new technologies like fintech and crypto, come join us. There's so much work to be done here. Uh, and I'm excited to do it. So Sam, I, I really appreciate the opportunity our team does, and we absolutely would uh, take any other opportunity to, to speak with you in the community. How can they access you guys? Uh, what's your website? Finclusive.com, F-I-N-C-L-U-S-I-V-E.com. Right on the homepage there, you'll get a, a good smattering of uh, information on, on the work we're doing. And you can contact us at uh, Finclusive.com.